glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, would you stand please with me as we read, we'll again read two places, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 12, and then 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. 1 Timothy 6, 1, let as many servants as are under the yoke uh, count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse 11, But thou, what's he call him? O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, Meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. We'll stop reading for, for now in that chapter. Go over, if you would, then, to Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, very well-known passage of Scripture here, especially at the end of the chapter. Uh, the Bible says in verse 10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou... In the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Thank you. You may be seated. As I study between these two texts and the, the verses surrounding them where the, the term man of God is used, we're going to see five things tonight concerning a man of God that I believe are, are going to be characteristic of but are also incumbent upon any man of God. And we say man of God, what do we mean? Well, I thought, well, for my own understanding... Uh, we hear that term of God immediately. You're seeing a man that is uh, affiliated with God, a man that is associated with God, but it's more than that. If I say the Word of God, 
What do I mean? I'm sorry? I mean the Bible, correct. But we say the word of God. We mean not the word of men. We mean not, what we mean is a message, words that have proceeded from God. They are authorized and authored by God. We understand that they, they are words that belong to God. And I believe you can see the term man of God in the same sense. A man of God is number one, if we would think of it this way, a man who is possessed by God. He's a man of God. He belongs to God. If I said, uh, if you said, is that child over there one of your children? You're saying, does that child belong to you? A man of God is a man who belongs to God. He is a man of God. He is God's possession, bought with a price, amen? So a man of God is a saved man, someone who's been bought and purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus, the offer of salvation having been made and by faith been accepted that is the first thing we'd see a man of God is. This is not your final outline. Just give this by way of introduction. So a man of God is a man that is possessed by God. He is a man then that proceeds from God. Remember what Ephesians 2.10 says. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Meaning a man of God is a man who's created not only physically but spiritually by God. It says of John, there was a man who came from God. Was a man, John the Baptist was a man of God. God called him. God filled him with spirit from his mother's womb. So a man of God is a man who's possessed by God, but he is a man who proceeds from God, meaning he's not a self-called man. He's not a self-appointed man. He is a man that is directed and appointed and sent from God, a man who proceeds from God, having received life from God, and having received his calling from God, then a man of God is possessed by God, he is a man who proceeds from God, obviously and apparently is a man in partnership with God, we are laborers together with God, First Corinthians chapter 3 says of Paul and Apollos, we are laborers together with God, and so then a man of God is a man who is possessed by God, a man who proceeds from God, a man in partnership with God, and according to the text we see tonight, a man in pursuit of God, meaning I am following him. Those are a few things that would describe what a man of God is. A man. How many of us have ever heard this term? That guy is a man of the world. What do you mean that? Oh, by that. He is a man who's familiar with this world. He is a man who's savvy when it comes to material things. He is a man who knows his way around. He's a man who is... He is, he is in an understanding of even some of the dark things of this world. He's a man of the world. A man very familiar with how this world operates. Christian men are not to be men of the world. We're men of God. We are men who are possessed by God. We are men who are in partnership with God. We are men who proceed from God. We are men who are in pursuit of God. Based on this, and I believe that's a fair definition from the context of God's word. That's what it means to be a man of God. Now, Having said that, I believe Timothy met every one of those criteria. He'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apparently from a child, and that from a child thus known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, and so on and so forth. And so here's a young man who had been born again. He said, Paul said he had a good profession. He says that in 1 Timothy 6. You've made a good profession. Your faith and your profession of faith has been backed up by a life that demonstrates a genuine profession. Timothy had a good confession, good profession of faith, one that had merit to it is what Paul is really dealing with. So here's a man who is 
called of God. Paul said of Timothy, stir up the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on the hands of the presbytery. Paul said, you're not only possessed by God, but you are called of God to the ministry. God's given you a gift to serve him with. So Timothy proceeded from God, and certainly he was a man called to be in pursuit of God, follow after righteousness, faith, so on and so forth. So I believe those criteria that just laid out kind of defines what a man of God is, if you would. But then Paul says to Timothy, because you're a man of God, here are some things that apply to you. Now, I'm really probably stating my first point in just the introduction, but I wanted to to lay those things down so we have a good understanding of what we're talking about tonight. I don't believe a man of God is just every person that says they are. Anybody can say, I'm a man of God, I'm a woman of God. How many people do we meet say, I'm a person of faith? I'm a person of faith. Well, what does that mean, you're a person of faith? According to the Bible, it means I trust the Scripture. I trust what it says. So having said that, let's begin here with tonight the faith of a man of God. That's the first thing we hear about in the Scripture tonight as we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to look there again. The faith of a man of God is not a man who simply decides what he'll believe and holds to it. Many times today, that's what people mean when they say, I'm a person of faith. I have chosen what I want to believe, and I'm unwilling to change my belief. That's not faith in the biblical sense. Faith in the biblical sense is this, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. A man of God does not believe his emotions. A man of God does not believe his intellectual reasonings. A man of God believes what God says. The faith of a man of God is biblical faith. It's Christ-like faith, meaning I will believe God over myself. I will believe God over the message of my culture. I'll believe God over these other things. That's really what Paul is nailing down with Timothy. He is emphasizing to Timothy the importance of a faith that is rooted in Scripture. That's what the Bible says. He says in 2 Timothy 3.15, in verse 17 is our context. He says that the man of God may be perfect. Well, what is given that the man of God may be perfect? Scripture, the written word. Do you understand why the written word comes under such assault? I say this over and over, and I believe the Spirit of God leads of late to really emphasize over and over how important our Bibles are. There are people that say, I don't really love the Scripture, I just love the Savior. I hear that kind of talk a lot these days. Well, you need to quit making such a big deal of the Bible. It's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus. Let me say something tonight. You don't know Jesus without a Bible. Amen? It's the Bible that reveals Jesus Christ. And without a Bible, that name means nothing than just another name. He's Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's the Scripture that reveals Christ. When Philip opened uh, the Scripture in, in Acts chapter 8, we read of Philip preaching to the eunuch. The Bible says from Isaiah 53, and that from that place he preached unto him Jesus. From what place? The 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where it speaks of him being led as a a sheep to the slaughter and so forth. That's where the eunuch was reading, and out of the written word of God, Philip preached Christ unto him. Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. After the resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with two of those disciples, and they are communing with him and talking to him. They knew all about him. They had said, have you not heard what happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, tell me. I'm paraphrasing. What happened? And they speak of his death. Here they are talking to Jesus in the flesh. And they don't know it's him until he opens up the scripture. And from the scripture, he expounded unto them 
all the things concerning himself and the law and the prophets. And after he gave scripture and broke bread, then their eyes were opened. It's the written word of God that we trust in. For men today who say, I don't trust the Bible, I just trust Jesus. I step back and say, I stand in doubt of you. How do you trust in a Jesus that's not anchored in who the Bible says he is? The only way we know Jesus is the Son of God is the Bible says he is. It's not an experience I had yesterday. It's not an emotion I have. It's what Scripture says. The Bible says that we rest our faith on a man of God has a faith that is rooted in the written Word of God and that from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, meaning that word holy means these are writings unlike any other. You know what makes this book divine? It came from God. That's what Paul is saying. That's the difference. And may we just have it locked down tonight that God did not, He did not, He did not lose His Word in the last few generations. God did not come up against the English language or any other language and say, oh no, all I know to do is speak in Hebrew and Greek. I'm up. You say, Pastor, you say this all the time because there is a battle raging today to try to break your confidence that we have the Word of God in our hands. Many times we would say, what do you think is so special about the English language? I was saying this to Cason earlier, that God would preserve His Bible just for us. Number one, I don't think He's bound to one language now. He can give other language groups His Bible perfectly. Amen? But I do know the one I have is perfect. Boy, there's people that hate that. Hate What I just said, there is a group of people that hate that statement. You can't say there's a perfect English Bible. And here's the, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I say, watch me. <laughs> it is. You know why we say it's perfect? Because it is. It's a good thing we have a perfect Bible. Other than that, If not, we have to rely on imperfect men to tell us what God really said. But God told us, and someone says, well, what's so special about the English language? You know what's special about our language? God decided to give us a Bible in this language. God didn't say the English language is so wonderful, and the English-speaking people are so wonderful, I'm going to give a Bible in their tongue. Do you know what has set apart the English language? It's the language God decided to preserve a Bible in. It's not how wonderful the language was, it's how wonderful this book is. We're saying this, do you know how much of the King James Bible is in the English vernacular today? By the skin of your teeth, it's in the book of Job. Drop in a bucket, that's in your Bible. So on and so forth. I mean, our language is built and based upon not the RSV, not the NASV, not the whatever you want to say. This book right here, King James Bible. It has, it has the blessing of God upon it. And I'm not here just, I'm just saying, if you don't believe God has preserved His words in our generation, where are you turning to for what you believe? I've heard men of recent days who claim to be fundamental preachers say, well, you really have to really do a deep study of the original languages to find what God really said. Now, how many of you speak Greek? How many of you speak Hebrew? You poor people. I don't either, by the way. Us poor people. What are we going to do? Are you against that? I'm not against that. I'm saying... If Satan can shake our confidence in the written word of God, then what does your faith rest on? What does it rest upon? It has to rest upon education, human reasoning, intellectualism. It has to rest on something other than the written word of God. How many of you think that the problems that are presented to us today as to why we can't trust our Bible in our day, in our tongue, how many of you think perhaps the same arguments were made in Paul's day? 
Why not? Do you realize the scriptures that Paul was referring to were almost as old as the scriptures that we're holding in our hands? When Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he would have been referring to Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the book of Job, which at that time were some fourteen to 1,500 years old, just a few hundred years younger than our New Testament. Don't you? How many of us believe that the manuscripts that Paul was referring to when he said, bring me the parchments, were the originals? No. Some of them probably not in the original language. So wasn't there problems? How could Paul say that he had the inspired word of God? Because he believed that God inspired them and not man. That's how come. You say, what's the point for us tonight? You and I will never have a faith that's worth having unless it's rooted in what is written. Thus saith the Lord, not thus thinketh man. If I've got to rely on what some man thinks God says, we're all in trouble. But we can go and say, you know what I believe? I believe what God says. Because we have the written word of God. I'm glad for that tonight, by the way. I get stirred up because I'm glad about it. And it's also this. You say, why is this an issue that's brought up? I won't tell you why. It's a battle in our days that has been every generation. And you'll never go on for God unless you root your faith in what this book says. What God preserved for us, what it says. Look here, just open your Bible, read it, believe it, and live by it. That's the simplicity, and have your heart open to it, and the Spirit of God will teach us by it. So the faith of a man of God, as we see in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, is rooted in Scripture, the holy writings. He says, verse 15, that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What the Scripture will do is bring you to a relying and resting faith on Jesus Christ. Is that not what it says? And that from a child that's known the Holy Scriptures, which are what? Able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, plus all you can do. All you can do is based upon what he has done. Amen. He's going to charge him about good works, but you'll never produce the good works you need to until you're resting and relying upon Christ Jesus. And you'll never come to that place unless you believe what the Scripture says. You know what? You know where confident, any confidence I have today in Jesus Christ, you know where it's come from? Right out of this book. My Bible tells me that he is able to succor me in time of temptation. As I take him at his word, so you know what that verse means very practically? That when I'm facing a temptation, the Lord Jesus Christ is ready to help me overcome it. When I take that verse at face value and I turn to him and say, Lord, I'm struggling, I am weak, would you please help me? He honors his word. He is able to succor those that are tempted. Hebrews chapter 2, I believe it is, deals with that. And so the faith of a man of God is rooted in the written word, rooted in Scripture, that brings him to reliance and rest upon Jesus Christ. Uh, That from a child that's known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make the wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so we could expound upon that and expand upon that, but it's, it's plainly spoken. Excuse me. The faith of a man of God rooted in Scripture reliant upon and resting upon the Savior, and the faith of a man of God rejoices in salvation. Go, if you would, to 1 Timothy 6 again. The word rejoice is not here, but when he says lay hold on eternal life, he is not talking about get saved. He just told Timothy he had a good profession. So he's not saying you need to get saved. What does he mean then? How many of you have told somebody, here's a concept you need to get a hold of? Meaning you need to wrap your mind around the truth of this. You need to get a hold of what God has done for you. I've been saying recently uh, over and over that we as Christians live below our privileges. You know what I'm trying to say? 
lay hold on eternal life. Get a hold of what God has done for you when He saved you and gave you eternal life. Paul's not telling Timothy, you're losing eternal life. Get a hold of it. That's not even the context of 1 Timothy 6. He's talking about being content and not being uh, loving money and thinking that godliness is not the gain and so forth. That's the context. So he tells him in 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, uh, lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. The idea of laying hold of eternal life is the man of God gets a hold of what God has actually done for you. Because of your rooted, being rooted in the Word of God and resting in Christ, lay hold on eternal life. Get a grip and a grasp on all that Christ did for us when He saved us. And that's again, that's what he's dealing with. First Timothy 6 is about getting a hold of the value of the eternal in contrast to the temporal. You know what happens when we do not reckon properly, as Romans chapter 6 says to do, we're to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. If we don't actually estimate the proper value of eternity, you know where we'll set our hearts? On the temporary. We'll set our hearts on riches. That's why Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added unto you. You know, Paul's telling Timothy, if you don't lay hold on eternal life, the, the absolute assurance you're going to spend eternity with God and what Christ gave you when He gave you eternal life, you might be tempted to value temporal things over eternal things. So you lay hold on eternal life and fight the good fight of faith. We've got something better than a new car. We've got something better than a six-figure income, friend. We have an inheritance incorruptible that fadeth not away. And it's as factual as if a car was just parked in your car uh, driveway, keys put in your hand and title placed in your hand. It's ours. The gift of God is eternal life. When you and I graduate from this life, we are going to something so much better. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Christianity is not about a better life. It is about eternal life. You know what Paul wants Timothy to do? A man of God by faith must get a hold of this. Rejoice in what God has done for you. The faith of a man of God is rooted in Scripture. It is reliant and rests upon the Savior through the Scripture. And therefore it can rejoice in salvation, not just salvation from hell, but eternal salvation What Christ has done for us is of eternal value. What's the profit of man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So the person who's resting in Christ has not lost his soul. By yielding it and committing our eternal destiny and committing the forgiveness of our sins to Christ and putting that in his hand, Paul said, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. As we have entrusted our soul to Christ, you and I can rest We're going to spend eternity with Him. I'm going to tell you what this does. Laying hold of eternal life liberates you to serve God. It takes the shackles off of feeling like you have to earn this, you have to get this, you have to have this. I have to have this accolade and this praise of men and this possession. When I know where I'm going for eternity and I'm settled on that and I've laid hold of what Christ has done for me, it liberates me to live free from the criticism of men, free from the pressures of wealth and all of that. It's a liberating truth that gives joy to the Christian to live with assurance of eternity. Amen? And so then Paul says, lay hold of that. Now we've dealt with the faith of the man of God. Number two, if you're there in 1 Timothy 6, if a man is a man of God by faith, then there's some things we have to flee. The Bible deals with fleeing. So, 
if we've laid hold of eternal life by faith, then what is competing with that laying hold on eternal life? With valuing the eternal? Well, it's the temporal that does that. There's a constant battle in the mind of a Christian over what is actually valuable and what I'm pursuing. I, I want to ask you tonight, I want you to really think. I want you to, 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 to try to, with God's help, answer this question. If you had to spell out tonight what you are pursuing in life, like this is, this is what I want, this is what I want to get a hold of. If you had to, if you had to spell out, this is, this is my dream, this is what I want to be, this is what I want to obtain, this is the kind of person I want to become, and I'm especially, all of us included, but especially young people, if someone had to say, what are you pursuing? What is important to you? What would it be? What's important to you? Is it important to be recognized by others? Is it important to... I know we all know the right answer, but that's not what I'm asking for. I'm not asking for the right answer. I'm asking for the true answer. I believe if we could study our, our daily habits, we would know what we're after. What is it we, we make time for? That'll help us know what our hearts are set after. What is it that, that grabs my attention? Let me ask you this. If people that know you well were to testify, this is what they are really in love with, what would they say? I find this. The things I'm pursuing are the things I talk about. They're the things I want others to know about. The things that I am pursuing are the things that I take time to learn about. They're things that I take time to um, think about. Things that I spend money to obtain. These are things we're pursuing. Tonight, something has your heart's attention. You need to know what it is because there are certain things that get our attention and our affection and instead of pursuing them, we need to flee from them. A man of God knows there are certain things that are a danger to him that will cripple him in serving God because a man of God lives to please who? Because we're men of faith, we live to please God. Let me put it this way. We understand this in a marriage relationship. There are certain kind of women I steer clear of. You know why? Not because I'm afraid of my wife, because I love her. I don't want to damage our relationship. So I stay as far away from those kind of people as I can. There are certain kind of places and there are certain kind of things. In order to preserve a good relationship with my wife, more than anything, I want my wife to trust me. I want her to know that I will look out for her best interest, that she doesn't have to worry about me hurting her. I want to daily earn her trust because that is a basis of love. And because I care about my wife and our relationship, I safeguard that. And there are certain things I don't say, we have such a strong relationship, I can hang out with other women all the time, and it doesn't matter what kind of character they are. We have such a good marriage, I don't have to worry about it. That'd be nonsensical, wouldn't it? Because of our marriage, there are certain things I'm going to flee from. There are certain things as men of God, we got to flee from. Meaning it is so dangerous that if you don't avoid it at any cost, it will captivate you and destroy you. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, verse 3, a prudent man foreseeth the evil and goes right on by it because he's strong. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Any man of God is going to gain prudence enough to know, and if we are men of God, and for those of you, this room is filled with men of God, then men of God must flee certain things. We must run from them fast and hard. 
For you young men here sitting tonight, listen please very closely. I believe the young men in this room, I believe it's my responsibility to remind you tonight, you are men of God. Though young men, men of God. You're not men of the world. You're no longer belonging to Satan. You belong to God. He bought you the price. He has put His Spirit within your heart. He has a job for you. Your job is then to serve Him with all your heart. Then there are some things you've got to run from. And today, in the world we live in, they're available at the, at, at the end of your hand, wherever you want them. So you're going to have to have some safeguards in your heart and flee from some things. Let's, let's look at what those are. In 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul says, But thou, O man of God, what's the first thing he says? Flee these things. When I read that verse, I want to go, what these things is he talking about? When he says, flee these things, hey, I want to know what I'm supposed to run from. If I'm supposed to flee, I want to know what I'm fleeing from. And so then, let's consider this for just a moment. If you have to back up here to figure out what he's talking about. Excuse me. So let's back up to verse 4, or verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're getting back to Scripture again. Faith rooted in Scripture. Faith resting upon and relying upon Jesus Christ. So if someone's teaching something contrary to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. So if a doctrine is not harmonious with godly living, that's what according to means. If there is a doctrine that is not harmonious or in accordance with godly living, it's not right. That's why much of what's being peddled off as grace today is not of God. They're using Bible terms and teaching devilish things. So it's got to be according to godliness. Verse 4, he is proud. The person that refutes the words of Jesus Christ and has a doctrine that's not according to godliness, he is proud. That's one of the things we've got to flee. Knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. What's Paul say? From such... Withdraw thyself. That's another term for flee. <laughs> Get away from them. All right? uh, so from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition has to do with danger and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. You get the context. Paul says there are those, number one, who have a prideful disposition. That's what he says. They are proud, knowing nothing. They are filled with their own thoughts, their own ideas. Young men, listen to me. As you get out into life and having to make some of your own decisions, you're going to find men like this. Men who spout off, I think... I think, I think, and they're going to propose an idea to you that is going to be in conflict with what Jesus Christ said, and you're going to have to make a decision, and I'm going to listen to that guy, I'm going to listen to the Word of God. And Paul says, when you find someone that is conflicting with godliness, they're giving you a doctrine that's not according to godliness, meaning God-likeness, conformity to Jesus Christ. He is proud and knowing nothing. Anybody would promote an idea that's in conflict with the words of Jesus Christ is a fool. He knows nothing. How foolish must we be to say the Creator got it wrong? (laughs) Amen? Proud knowing nothing. So the number one thing we need to flee is a prideful disposition. You know what? Every day, 
Every day, there's a temptation in each one of us to some degree to be proud. It's in us. It's part of our flesh. You know what we're supposed to do? Paul said, flee these things. Thou, O man of God, flee these things. Timothy, don't consort with people who are so prideful they'll disagree with God. When I find somebody that's willing to openly state, I believe such and such, and it is blatantly in contradiction with the Bible, my ears just went, you can talk, but I'm not listening. And I'm not going to look for fellowship with that person. We have so much to that. Look, we must love the brethren. We must fellowship to the greatest extent possible. But we have everybody and their brother today saying they're a Christian. Friend, you've got to be careful. You have people that, that, that are going to influence you. And so Paul's telling Timothy, he said, there's people with a prideful disposition. You flee these things. When you find someone like this, withdraw yourself. Don't, don't hang around people that like to argue about the Bible instead of believing it. That was, I want to say that again. Don't hang around people that want to argue about the Bible instead of just believe it. Your Bible was not written to give something to argue about. Your Bible was written to teach you how to be faithful and godly and, and live for Christ. It's not a debate station. Only a proud individual would think so. Pride, only by pride cometh contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. I believe this. Two people can disagree over what the Bible says, but if both have a desire to know the mind of God, they can sit down and say, I don't understand. Can you help me with this? And God can use that to help us. But when you have somebody that simply wants to argue and debate over what the Bible says, they've already decided they've rejected that. The person who's rejected the Word of God is constantly looking for reasons to dismiss it rather than obey it. Amen? I find one of the things that has solidified my position on sticking with this good old King James Bible is the disposition of those who hate it. That's one of the things that's locked me on to it. All they're always looking for is why it's not the Word of God. Why it's not the Word of God. They're not looking to find what is the Word of God, just prove what's not. They've not said, you know what? I have found that's not the Word of God, but God has shown me He's preserved His Word here, so I want to follow this. It's always, no, no, we don't know where the Word of God is, because if you do know where the Word of God is, then you've got an authority in your life. Amen? So tonight, what we need to do is when there's a prideful disposition, flee from it. Flee from my own. Flee from those who would stir that in me. We must flee from perverse disputings of men. That's what he says. They are, he is proud, the person that would conflict with the Word of God, proud, knowing nothing but doting means regarding with excessive fondness. That's what the word doting. Someone dotes on their child, it's excessive fondness. It's doting about questions and strifes of words. There are people who love questions that raise question marks in your mind about what the Bible says. God will help you with something in Scripture and someone will question and question and question. No, you know what? It's been said, Satan puts a question mark where God puts a period. God said, don't eat of that fruit. And Satan said, did God say not to eat that fruit? You with me? We get settled in faith on something and then somebody who loves to just argue. The Bible says, doting about questions and strifes of words. Well, uh, may I say this? Words matter greatly. But there are those who make too big of a deal over words. That's what God said. Just go on with it. How many of you ever said, I don't, I don't like the King James Bible. It's got these and thous. And, well, thee and thou is very difficult to understand. It's, it's challenging, isn't it? No. That strife's about words. We'd be better if we believed every time he said thee or thou and move on. And you say, you've already said that. I understand there are those who love to dispute because they've already disagreed with God's word. So there's prideful disposition where to flee from. That's what he says, flee these things. 
flee from those who love to debate and stir up strife about words, strifes of words, whereof cometh envy. I hate that person because they have what I don't. Strife, railings, evil surmisings. I, that case, he thinks he's better than me. Yeah, he's just stuck on himself. You with me? Evil surmisings. I surmise. Mm. How many have ever, hold on. Let's just be honest. There's, how many have ever falsely judged another person? It's a bad thing. I have at times felt like crawling in a hole because I just knew. Oh, I just knew that person over there. I know what they're, th- I, was, I surmised. I knew what I was talking about. I was so confident in my discernment. You know what causes us to have evil surmisings? A prideful disposition. And so God says, flee from that. Run. Timothy, that's not who you, that's not what a man of God does. He does not love debate and strife and contentions about words and evil surmisings that envy and all that is not of God. The Bible says in James, this wisdom proceedeth not from God. It's devilish. It's sensual, James 3 says. And so then, the man of God must flee from a prideful disposition. He must flee from perverse disputings and disputings of men of perverse minds, meaning they twist God's word and so forth. We must flee from pernicious, as he likes the word pernicious and uses it there, uh, the pernicious ways and uses the word perdition rather in, in verse 9. All this pernicious and perdition, dangerous and deadly things. So we must flee from pernicious determinations. What do you say? What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at the context again. He says here in verse 6, but godliness, he said verse 5 rather, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing, this is their determination, that gain is godliness. More means you're, it's just one of Jim or Jeff once said, you must be doing something right. <laughs> if you're gaining in life, you must be doing something right. No, not necessarily. And they suppose that gain is godliness. Paul says, from such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. He's getting Timothy focused on eternity. Don't think about what you have. Think about what you're going to have when you leave this life. Think about what you can take with you into eternity. So in having food and raiment, let us be there with content. You find contentment in God's faithful provision. What was it Jesus said he would provide if we sought first his kingdom and righteousness? Food and raiment. Isn't that really what's necessary to survive physically? Food and clothes. And he said, you got that? Be content. Now look, if we can be content with food and raiment, how content should we be? How many have a little bit more than food and raiment? God says it's not a sin to have more than food and raiment, but get a hold of this. We have excessive amounts of food, excessive amounts of raiment, more than one vehicle, house big enough to sleep, everybody, almost everybody in their own bedroom, plenty of room to sleep, and we still complain. That's sin. That is sin. You know why? Because it's covetousness. I am not content with what God has provided. Oh, God's been so good to us in material goods. Has he not? We ought to be so thankful. I believe we should. We shouldn't be guilt filled with guilt. If God's given you more than food and raiment, don't feel guilty. Be thankful. Be a giver. But tonight, if you can be content with food and raiment, you know where some of this comes from? There are those who, who base their success in life on gain. How much do I have? And God says, no, no, no. You flee from that. That is, a, that is a dangerous determination. That's a dangerous conclusion. 1 Corinthians 6.18 deals with another perverse determination that we're to flee from. I, I need to throw this in here. It's not mentioned in this text, but a couple of times in God's Word, we're told to flee some things. 
1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. A man of God flees the love of money. A man of God flees lustful pursuits. He flees from that which he is not strong enough to overcome by way of temptation. For young men here tonight, can I give you some counsel? If you don't want to get caught up in filthy living, stay away from what opens the door. Don't give yourself the opportunity. Stay away from the opportunity to sin if you don't want to commit the sin. There are people that mock and ridicule the the purity culture. Well, what do we need? A filthy culture? I'm going to tell you something. The church is a purity culture. We say, all the preaching about purity from preachers. What are we supposed to preach? Go out and live ungodly? (laughs) Are you with me tonight? Tonight, a man of God flees the love of money. That's what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6. And by the way, the same thing that fuels the love of money is the same thing that fuels fornication. Lust. It's all about my pleasure, my happiness, me getting what I want, but not the man of God. The man of God is not pursuing what he wants. The man of God is pursuing what God wants. You say, well... Am I a man of God? If you're saved, are you God's possession? Are you God's workmanship? Are you called to serve God? Then you're a man of God. Then you know what we need to do? The man of God must flee some things. Meaning run for your life. When you, when you sense the love of money creeping into your bosom, run. You run to God's word and read 1 Timothy 6 and claim it and live by it. And you know, young man, if you start to love money, it'll destroy you. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money, not. The love of it, yes. It is. You think about every vice in our country, and it is fueled by what? The love of You know why we can't shut the abortion industry down? Because it is too wealth-producing for too many people. There are people that officially take a position of pro-life, but they are secretly getting rich on their pro-death benefactors. You with me? Christians, you know why a lot of Christians can't conquer it? Because they're believers that are men of God and women of God and love money too. Believing that gain is godliness and that money will answer our problems doesn't work that way. So, the man of God must flee from the prideful disposition, perverse disputings of men from from, pro-death pernicious determinations, the, the, the judgment that, hey, if I have more money, that will be better. By the way, there's all kinds of excuses for that. The, the love of money can be guised with, well, I just want to do more for God. I just want to do more for God. And I could do more for God with wealth than I could with poverty. Held that to the Lord Jesus. He did more with poverty than any man's ever done with wealth. He became poor that we might be rich. Well, I just know I'd be more useful to God if I had more money. Hogwash and nonsense. That's just a guise for the love of money. And the Bible says, By that, listen to the warning, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith. We have turned aside from what believing what God says because it didn't line up. If I believe what God says, I'm going to have to take a pay cut. If I believe what God says, I'm not going to be able to have that career. If I follow the will of God in my life, it's going to cost me this amount of dollars. So I've determined that's not what the Bible means now. Because if I change the meaning of the Bible, it's going to allow me to do what I want to to make more money. I've seen this play out too many times, too many times. And so God's word says, Some coveted after they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, man of God, do what? 
flee. You know how many people, we're, especially it's a temptation for young men. We like as humans to flirt with danger at times, do we not? How close can I get to that dangerous animal without being bitten? How close can I get to the edge without falling over? How high can I jump without dying when I land? You with me? God says there's some things, if you don't run from them, they're going to get you. The only way to stay safe is stay away. Don't mess around with fornication. Don't mess around with covetousness. You know the sad thing about covetousness in America? You can make it work. There are people in poor countries that are covetous and more miserable than ever because they're covetous and it doesn't work for them. But it's more deadly even in this country because if you're covetous, you can get wealthy. And that's doubly deceptive because now you got what you thought you wanted and it leaves you pierced through with many sorrows. So the faith of man of God is rooted in Scripture, reliant and resting upon the Savior, rejoices in eternal life, salvation. The fleeing of the man of God, we're to flee a prideful disposition, perverse disputings over contention, strife about the words of God. Don't just agree with God's word. And then pernicious or deadly determinations that gain is godliness or that momentary pleasure is better than long-term righteousness. Number three, the following of the man of God. These points will not be alliterated because they're just spelled out so clearly in the Bible. Verse 11, But thou, man of God, flee these things, flee the love of money, flee the things we just talked about, and follow after righteousness. You know the first thing we're supposed to be pursuing? Today, when I, tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm not supposed to think, what do I want to do today? I'm supposed to think, what does God want me to do today? Not what will make me happy, but what is right. What is right? What is righteous? What is aligned with the word of God and the will of God and is pleasing to God? We know that's righteousness. Obeying God. Romans 6 says, here's your definition for righteousness. Obeying God. You can check it out in your own time. Obedience to God equals righteousness. So as a saved person, you know what we're supposed to do? Pursue today righteousness. Too many people arise and roll out of bed and say, what will make me happy today? No, no, what is right today? What is right? What's the right way to treat my wife? What's the right way to respond and treat my children? What's the right way to spend time with God? What's the right way to treat my enemies? What's the right way to live in a sinful world? What's the right way to handle my money? What's the right way to conduct myself around other people? God has a way in Christ Jesus for us to live. The man of God is to follow after righteousness. Follow after righteousness. Then he says godliness. So righteousness is doing what is right, what is just and true and honest. Godliness is conforming to the character of God. It goes beyond my duty and it goes to devotion to God. It goes to say, I will do what's right because God's the authority and he says so. No, no, I'll do what's right because I want to be like my heavenly father. Be therefore holy as the Lord your God is holy. We're to conform to him. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith. You know what you're supposed to be pursuing? I want today to to demonstrate the fact and act upon trust in God. I'm going to look for what God says, and I'm going to pursue trusting Him. For every person in this room, and especially the young people, there is a competition in your heart and mind with what God says. Your faith is, I will prefer what God says over anything else. That's to be my pursuit today. 
living by trust in God. I'm going to trust God today for wisdom. I'm going to trust God today for the strength He's promised to provide me. I'm going to trust Him to deliver me from temptation. I'm going to trust God to direct my steps, to order my steps. I'm going to trust God to lead me into the paths of righteousness as He promised to do. We ought to be pursuing faith in God. Pursue and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith. Fourthly, love. You know what love is? I'm not pursuing me. I'm pursuing the benefit of someone else. I'm pursuing a life that pleases God and is profitable to those around me. This is, listen, this is to be what drives the man of God. Uh, Selfishness prevails by nature. Selflessness is the name of a life of a Christian. I'm to rise and say, how can I be a servant today? How can I serve God's purpose in my life? How can I be an asset used of God? You know what my hope is, and I hope and trust your hope is, how can God use me today to help bring righteousness into your life, godliness into your life, faith into your life? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for someone to say, I wouldn't have trusted God if I'd never met you. But through your life, God showed himself faithful. You know how that happens? And you and I live by faith and trust God. Oh, his desires, His wishes over my own. Trust His will and His word over my own and live by faith. Then I can love. Faith which worketh by love, the Bible says. So we're to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience. Patience, being willing to wait on God and be willing to wait on God as He works in the lives of others. Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength restrained for the benefit of another. Weakness is the restraining of of power and strength in order to serve someone else. Meekness is the God of heaven coming down and dying when he could have killed. That's meekness. These are to be the things we're pursuing day by day. My question is, if we're a man of God, a woman of God, are these things what are on our mind day by day? Am I thinking what's right? What What is pleasing to God? What would God do? What would he want in my life? What has God said so that I can trust Him? And uh, what do I need to do to be a blessing to someone else and for my life to be spent for their benefit? That's love, meekness, and patience. You can take time and study those more deeply. They much align with what we looked at in Second Peter 1. But this is to be what the man of God is pursuing and following. Now listen, if Paul had to remind Timothy of this, don't you think we need reminded? Uh, flee these things, flee the love of money, flee these sensual passions and prideful disposition and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. That's the following of the man of God. Fourthly, and we'll move quickly to these last two points, the furnishing of the man of God. How do I get furnished to do these good things I'm supposed to do? Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, we know 16 so well. We need not miss verse 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect. How many of you are listening to the message tonight and go, i got some work to be done? Now, if everybody's got it straight, then let's go back and start over. <laughs> we all have some work to be done. If not, we're perfect. Paul said himself, I count not myself to have apprehended, as though I'm, I'm not already perfect, meaning I'm not complete, but I follow after. Isn't that what Paul said? If by any means I may apprehend that which I am apprehended for, Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, 
So tonight we're not perfect. Well, how can I go from where I am to what God wants me to be? How can I go to being a person that's living by faith, a person that is godly? I, I believe I'm a man of God, a woman of God, but I'm not what I ought to be. How do I get from where I am to where I'm supposed to be? All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect. Do you know why your adversary wants to keep you out of this book? Because this is how you go forward in the will of God. Young person, listen to me. Learn to love your Bible. If you've got something keeping you out of your Bible, pitch it. Say it's harmless. It's a sinless book. If it's keeping you out of your Bible, it's wicked. I don't care how harmless and innocent it seems. If you've got something killing your appetite, and I know who I'm preaching to tonight, so hear me. You've got something that's stymieing your appetite for this book. You better examine that thing. If you've got something that's grabbed your interest and grabbed your affection and you're seeing your love for the Bible decline, you better read, do an inventory check and find out what's stealing your affection for God because you're not going to be able to serve God without a love for Scripture. The Bible says, it's given that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You realize... God has given you everything in the pages of this, of this Bible that you need to establish you and equip you to do all He's called you to do. God's called you to be a godly young person. Your Bible has what you need to perfect you in that. See, so my, my obedience and honor my parents, ooh, not perfect. You need your Bible. It'll equip you. You'll find in Christ Jesus all you need, but it's going to come through the pages of Scripture. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. That has to do with your character. Your character. You know why our conduct's not what it's supposed to be? Because our character's not what it's supposed to be. Perfect has to do with what we are. Truly furnished unto all good works has to do with what we do. You know what the Bible will do? It'll change your character and it'll change your conduct. Who's this for? Is it for men of the devil? No, it's for the man of God. God understands you can be a man of God, but you're not perfect. So he gave us the Bible to truly furnish us unto all good works. Are you getting what God's saying? Perfect means complete, everything you need. Truly furnished means lacking no part. You have been completely equipped unto all good works. So the scripture is given. And you know what? We need to approach it with what does God have for me today that will equip me to do what God wants me to do and to be what God wants me to be. Finally, we see not only the faith of the man of God, the fleeing of the man of God, the following of the man of God, the furnishing of the man of God, but fifthly, number five, the fight of the man of God. First Timothy chapter 6. We've dealt with tonight a conflict between the flesh that craves sensual appetite and is prideful and contentious and wants wealth. And God says, no, not for the man of God. Flee those things. Follow these things. How I many you know it's just that easy? You just find your sensual passions. No, I just run for those and I just follow this. No, there's a fight. Notice what it says, 1 Timothy 6, 12, verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. We're going to take that phrase and break it down. Number one, fight. I say this, and I think it needs to be said. Many battles are not won because they are not fought. If some, How many of you remember reading about Ahab in the Bible? And the Assyrian army came and the king came and said, hey, we're going to come in and take anything. We're going to come and we're going to take your wives, your children, yada, yada, yada. And Ahab says, okay. Do you know why Ahab didn't win that battle? He wasn't willing to fight it. 
I don't like her anyway. Come, please, take her off my hands. <laughs> I don't blame him. Somebody said, I'll take Jezebel. I said, you'd have her. <laughs> I'm going to take her kids too. Please, get them too while you're at it. <laughs> no, he was fine. You come, you can have my family. I won't fight for him. In the book of Nehemiah, there were those who wanted to come and overtake their families. The Bible says every man fought. Fought. You know what a fight is? It is a willing, purposeful opposition of someone who wants to overcome your life. May I say this? You will not beat the devil by not resisting him. The Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. You've got to fight him. You've got to pick up the Bible and say, I just thought this, and I know that's not true based on the word of God. So the word of God says this. Fight means an active, willing application of strength in opposition to something that wants to overtake me. We have to fight. The Christian life is a fight. Here's the wonderful thing. You have the strength to win. God's given you an armor in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you cannot be overcome. But you'll not win a battle. You do not fight. Fight, number two, the good fight. Make sure you're fighting the right fight. A lot of people are fighting today, but they're fighting the wrong, the wrong enemy. How many ever studied the men of Ephraim in the Bible? They were constantly fighting their brethren. They were constantly, they were mad at Gideon. You went to battle without us, and they're ready to kill Gideon for fighting the enemy. Makes me think of some in our day. We don't like the way you're fighting, so we're going to fight you. No, hey, fight the good fight. Meaning, fight sin. Fight Satan. Fight the lies of Satan. Don't fight God's people. Don't fight the Bible. That's the wrong fight. Fight the good fight. And the good fight is a fight of faith. Fight the good fight that requires you to believe God. Fight the fight that says, I'm going to stand for what God says. I'm not going to stand for what the culture says. It doesn't matter how much reasoning they give me. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. Because I believe God, I'm going to stand with Him. I'm going to take God's side. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. I'll say this, you'd be shocked at the forward progress you'll make when you say, God said it and that settles it. I'm not going to think about anything else that's outside of what God said. I'm going to cast down every imagination that exalts itself against the Word of God. I'm tempted to believe in evolution. I'm not going to. That is in direct conflict with what God says. I will not entertain that thought. It's called fighting the good fight. (laughs) I'm tempted to believe that being immoral might be okay in my situation. God says, no, let it not be once named among you. Fight the good fight of faith. To fight the good fight of faith, you're going to have to fight with the shield of faith. You're going to fight with the word of God and the helmet of salvation and the gospel on your feet. But the first part of that is fight. Number two, the good fight. And it must be fought by Tonight, you know what? We have a lot of men of God in this room. We need, we need men, particularly, I'm speaking to males, who are men of faith in the Scripture, in the Savior. Men who will flee evil. Men who will follow righteousness. Men who will get in the Bible and get equipped for the works that God has called us to do. And men who will fight the good fight of faith. But it's equally true of the young ladies and the women in this room. This applies to people of God. And so tonight, men of God are men of faith, men who flee, men who follow, men who are furnished, and out of that, men who fight the good fight of faith. Amen? Amen. I, I hope this is very practical tonight, but I'll challenge us. And if we're here tonight and you say, you know what? I know what I ought to be. You might say, tonight, I, I don't know if I'm a man of God. You need to answer this question. Do you know you're saved? Do you know you're saved? Then you're a man of God.
Paul didn't say, Timothy, try to be a man of God by faith and following and fighting. He said, thou man of God. You are a man of God. Therefore flee. Therefore follow. Therefore fight and be furnished because of who you are. Tonight you're saved. You're a child of God, a man of God, a woman of God. Then the fight is for us. The furnishing is for us. The fleeing and the following, it's applicable to us. Mm-hmm.